0: Computer, initialize holosuite.
1: On this exciting episode of Starpod Log, we consider the sci-fi contents of Starlog magazine from 1978 in issues 13 and 14, including
2: 501st Legion member B.J. Savage considers the article David Prowse: The Man Behind the Mask. He also describes what it is like to costume as Darth Vader.
1: Joey Pittman discusses Walt Disney's space shows of the 50s.
2: Listen how horror superfan Derek Martin had the opportunity to meet Forrest J. Ackerman at the Mansion.
1: Artist Kevin B. Cleveland discusses the ingenuity that painter Matthew Juricich used in the movies.
2: Kevin Lentz describes the niche hobby of collecting science fiction records.
1: Artist Jeremiah Pandoja admires the work of Star Wars matte painter P.S. Ellenshaw.
2: All this plus Logan's Run, Project UFO, Capricorn 1, and more on Star
1: Pod Law.
2: Greetings and felicitations.
1: Hip hip hoorah, tally ho. Hey baby doll. Hey Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and fantasy.
2: On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago.
1: But we leave the Star Trek related content to our other podcast,
2: If you are listening to us on a podcast app, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which includes bonus content and media reviews.
1: Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions.
2: We look forward to attending Superman Celebration in Metropolis, Illinois.
1: July 30th through August 1st.
2: Why do you love Superman Celebration so much, Cutie Pie?
1: I mean, it's it's just a lot of fun. You you go there, and, it, and it's all outdoors, except for a few things like the Superman Museum. And they have that huge um, Superman statue there. And, I mean, it, and it's just so much fun celebrating Superman and all the fans in the superhero costumes.
2: Yeah, it's not just Superman. I'd say it's all DC heroes are represented there because you have fans from all over just living it up. It's not so much of a convention. It's like a street festival.
1: Yes, and it's totally free.
2: A few of the interviews that we did in this episode were taken at ICC Con, and that's an annual Star Wars convention in Nashville, Tennessee.
1: We attended ICC Con uh, this year. This was our what third year. You you just go there and see all the um. I mean, all the collectibles are just amazing. They have so many vendors there, and so many of the of the fan groups there, and there's people from around the world. We have international collectors who who come to town for this one.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been to Star Wars Celebration and ICC Con, and quite honestly, I enjoy ICC Con better. So we look forward to going next year as well. Art Starlog Magazine, issue number 13, cover date, May 1978. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. 1978 looks like a. it will be a banner year for science fiction on the widescreen. Star Trek II, with its refurbished Enterprise, is planning to beam down on or about Christmas of 1978. The film rights to Asimov's classic iRobot have been secured, and the task of writing the screen version has been given to Harlan Ellison. Space Probe? An expensive Walt Disney production? Capricorn One due this Easter? And Star Wars 2 is currently being prepared for production in London.
1: Okay, so you said Star Trek 2. That, of course, didn't happen in 1978.
2: And it, didn't, it wasn't called Star Trek 2, or what would be known as Star Trek Phase 2. It went to be Star Trek The Motion Picture. But it was an exciting time. We know that by the late 70s, early 80s, space fantasy and science fiction was all the rage. New Star Wars Ad Campaign a new advertising art image has appeared as of this past Christmas Day in the newspaper ad campaign for Star Wars. So we got to figure, by this time, Star Wars has been out for a number of months, but they want people to come back to the theaters to see it again or introduce it to people who haven't seen it for the first time.
1: I I do remember that it was re-released at some point because I didn't see it when it first came out, but I did get to see it in a theater. I saw
2: it at the re-release in '79. So yeah, this is the first of many re-releases in 78. Star Wars Laser Show Science fiction fans on both East and West Coast were treated recently to a multimedia music event called the Star Wars Laser Concert. It was a laser effect spectacular with the American Symphony Orchestra. The orchestra played selections from Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Holt's The Planets. I bet you that had been awesome to see in real life.
1: Yeah, that sounds cool.
2: Widescreen heroic fantasies. With the coming of The Man of Steel later this year, movie producers have rifled through their paperback libraries and have come up with more exciting heroic properties for cinematic recreation, including Tarzan, Lynn Carter's Thongor, and Conan the Barbarian. One of the first actors to be considered for the role of Conan is David Prowse, the portrayer of the infamous Darth Vader. Arnold Schwarzenegger has been signed for five Conan pictures, so he did beat out David Prowse. But in 1978, imagine that. Conan already, or Arnold, had already signed for five pictures. They were ambitious about the success of this movie.
1: Yeah, I guess they they wanted to go ahead and do the, the contract for all of them. In in case there were that many, so, so yes, yeah, so
2: there were two Conan movies instead of five.
1: Yeah, and and David Prowse, it, it would have been interesting to see him play Conan. Uh, and
2: um, interesting <laughs> is is putting it politely. I don't think he'd make a good Conan.
1: He he doesn't have yeah you know the the same kind of face as Arnold. Arnold is better looking in movies, right? He's bigger. Even that. Well, David Prowse was a bodybuilder too.
2: But he's just big.
1: But, but not as yeah. Not or he's like not Arnold. cut.
2: Arnold is a bodybuilder that's cut. He's not a weightlifter per se. He's not a powerlifter. I mean, Arnold's physique is just awesome.
1: That that is true. That is he he is more fitting for the part. Uh, the other thing, yeah, the reason I believe that they wanted to to contract everybody for five is because that way you can lock people into a contract so they won't come back. Like the first one's a big hit. He can't ask for more money. That's right. That, yeah, that's the thing about doing the large contracts.
2: Yeah, you're right. And they don't have to worry about flip-flopping different faces. Kind of like with James Bond. They were contracting per movie, not for a series of movies.
1: Right. At least, yeah, that way Arnold would have to make himself available for all five movies.
2: Yeah. It's interesting, though. 1978, the ball got rolling for this. There's an ad for the official Star Wars fan club. And it says, finally, at last. Hey, kids. Be the first on your planet to join the official Star Wars fan club. It's only four ninety-five. Please do not send cash. Wow. <laughs> what would you have done?
1: I guess I wouldn't have joined if I couldn't send cash.
3: <laughs> hey, everybody. This is BJ Savage. And uh, today I'm going to be talking a little bit about... David Prowse, Darth Vader, the man, the myth, the Sith Lord. Now, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about first uh, a Starlog magazine article where Dave talks a bit about not getting the credit he deserved for playing Darth Vader. He felt like he was finally in a very big role, but was somehow overshadowed by the rest of the cast, even his voice. (laughs) But he was a, a new actor at the time. Uh, he was been in, uh, films like Casino Royale, Clockwork Orange, and, uh, many horror films like The Horror of Frankenstein and others. Uh, he was a very talented athlete, uh, when he was younger. Uh, he became a very successful bodybuilder. Uh, he was around six, seven out of costume. Uh, he actually became a British weightlifting champion. But soon he decided he kind of wanted to get out of all that. He started getting into some acting roles that needed a big strong guy and uh, after playing a couple of these monsters characters as well as being in some commercials and stuff he got a call from George Lucas. He was offered two roles for Star Wars Chewbacca and Darth Vader and of course David wanted to play the big villain Darth Vader. When he first suited up as Vader George gave him very little direction. Uh, so it was up to him to find the right way to be menacing and imposing. The slow walk became part of it. He enjoyed working on the film and working with his friend Peter Cushing, who said it was great to work with uh, Alec Guinness as well. Alec and he practiced their lightsaber duel a lot. He accidentally even knocked over Alex, Alec at one time, and uh they also had to be very careful not to break the uh lightsaber props, which is uh, still kind of the case today now many people know prowse did all the dialogue uh for vader and he said at the time george uh told him the plan was to use special effects on his voice uh to make him sound more mechanical uh, you know more like a robot or something but in the end they just had james earl jones do it that was something that would obviously bother him for a long time as he's made that known at times uh he wasn't he was pleased however to continue to appear as vader in the next two films and uh he was even in a couple of commercials i think as darth vader uh, he, he figured that was his best career choice so he'd stick with it despite not getting to really see his own face or hear his own voice uh, he did make it clear that deep down of course he wanted to be very famous and instantly recognized just like every other actor does at the end of the day Now, I was fortunate enough to meet him once in 2011 at a convention. I can't remember what the convention was, but he was there at his table signing autographs, and he was very nice, and although I was able to spend a good amount of time chatting with him, I think he was getting tired. It had been a long day, and he was probably ready for a nap after a long day of autograph signing and talking to convention goers, and I don't blame him. When someone wears the Darth Vader suit in the 501st, it's also very tiring. It's heavy and usually very hot, but the person inside is living the dream. Everyone always wants pics with Vader, and sometimes we get lines of folks who want to say hello and get a selfie. The kids just love him, and it's awesome. I'm sure it's nothing like getting to be the man himself who is now extremely famous and recognizable as he wanted to be so long ago. Getting to wear the Vader costume uh, as a 501st member is truly an honor and a tribute to him.
4: Hi there, uh, this is Joey, one of the co-hosts of the Disney Universe podcast. In this article uh, from Starlog magazine, Walt Disney's Conquest of Space. I-, I love how this even starts. Before Lucas Star Wars, before Spielberg's Encounters, there was Walt Disney's Conquest of Space. Such a great article, uh, history of just... His uh, Tomorrowland show from uh, Walt Disney Presents or World of Color, uh, whatever you grew up watching. It also takes me back to uh, when I was a young kid growing up in the 80s and going to Disneyland. My favorite land there at the time was definitely uh, Tomorrowland. Uh, Star Tours just opened uh, when I was a young kid. I don't remember Journey to interspace Space, but I remember seeing videos and uh, reading about it. But of course, Space Mountain and you had the submarines, the People Mover. Uh, Mission to Mars, I believe it was called in the time. Of course, the Skyway buckets, the submarines. But I loved this uh, animated, this um, Tomorrowland that they showed on the world of Disney. You kind of really get a, a sense of just how driven he was to, uh, you know, kind of get into what we come to find in Epcot, but like the City of the Future and uh, just the future plans on like where we were going as a human race, and it was. I mean, you just compare it to, like, the writings of Jules Verne and uh, some of these, you know, early sci-fi artists and just storytellers. But it's just crazy, too, because this was happening in the 50s. So, you know, he was pretty much, you know, we're in in America. We're in the the race to the moon at the time, and people weren't getting the uh, true vision of what the possibilities of uh, for the space race and so, because of Walt Disney and his uh, t v series I mean regular people were just getting visuals of these uh at home on their couch, and you know you could kind of you kind of goes back to the toy story you know when in the fifties they' growing up with cowboys and uh stories, but then in comes the uh spaceman and everything was about getting into outer space and just super cool so you know it took a while for them to get to the Tomorrowland series. Of course, they're known for Fantasyland and Frontierland and Adventureland, but once they broke into Tomorrowland, it it really opened up uh, the door for just so much to go into. And one thing that's really cool, too, is uh, if you guys ever watch the Tomorrowland movie, uh, there's a little backstory about the Plus Ultra. They're the, the society that kind of had inventors and scientists and everybody all together. Well, in the deleted scenes, they actually had that Walt Disney was a member of the Plus Ultra group so I wish I would have had more of that story into the movie and I, I still think that would be a great uh, story to hear about is the uh, history of plus ultra and the vision for uh, space travel and going to the moon and Mars and everything so yeah th- this is actually kind of a series I've been wanting to bring up to our own uh, podcast the modern days of what Walt Disney did on um, the world of Disney so I kind of want to bring how Part of Adventureland, he had the uh, Nature's True Adventures specials, and now like Disney produces a lot of the Nat Geo uh, stuff. So, I, and I would like to get an updated one on space, so that would be really cool. Um, so, if you haven't checked out this article, I highly recommend it. And even if you can check it out, uh, I, I think they have some of the specials on these on Disney Plus.
2: Logan runs no more. In 1967. Logan's Run, by William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson, was published as a dial-hardback novel. Within time, Logan's Run became a movie, and the 1976 paperback has gone through eight printings because of the success of the movie. So, what do they do to build on this popularity? Well, they build a TV show. Did that TV show become successful?
1: No, unfortunately.
2: So, this is actually a memoriam of... Logan's run the T V series and it has an episode guide and a breakdown. I mean, you look at some of the writers, I mean there were some stinker shows, but there were some excellent ones. And we know that William F. Nolan was involved in the project, as well as Harlan Ellison and David Gerald. So you had some excellent pedigree here, even D C Fontana and Denny O'Neill.
1: And and they did have some good episodes. I mean, it, you know, the show just didn't take off for whatever reason. It, You know, as you always said, it wasn't really like the movie. They, they it, it almost could have been something completely different. They could have named it something else.
2: Well, that's the problem. <laughs> the movie ended on such a note that it didn't beg for a a recording series or even a sequel. Why would they just revamp it to make it like The Fugitive, like a reboot? It's so strange.
1: I mean, they yeah, they had to do something with it. Yeah, I guess that like they didn't just want to stay in one city because that wouldn't have been as interesting. So make it a, a, like a different setting every week, wh- which was good. It just, yeah, for some reason the show just didn't take off.
2: Any particular episodes you enjoyed?
1: The, the one, Man Out of Time, con- comes to mind, that was written by David Gerald about the man that came from the past to learn what caused the Holocaust. That one was really a great episode.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the more house outstanding ones. <laughs>
5: Good afternoon. My name is Derek Martin. I am the organizer of the Horror, Suspense, Sci-Fi, and Fantasy Friends meetup group. We are based in Nashville, Tennessee and have over 2,500 members. We meet regularly for current and classic film screens with the occasional book discussion and Haunt House visit. I appreciate this opportunity to share with you some background and stories about the world's greatest science fiction fan. I'm referring, of course, to Forrest J. Ackerman also known as Forey. Forey's contributions to fandom have been featured in many articles, including this 1978 issue of Storlog magazine in an article by Howard Zimmerman. Forey is most well-known as the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, a boring magazine which was published from 1958 to 1983 with 191 issues. There was no internet back then, so having a magazine to give us the scoop on new films coming out was very important. Horror icons like Vincent Price, Pierre Cushing, and Christopher Lee graced the covers. Famous Monsters was the most popular and successful magazine of its kind. Today, the back issues are big collector's items. It was also fun to browse the ads in it for the latest Star Wars and other collectibles. I'm probably not the only one who paid $9.95, for a pendant with genuine soil from Dracula's castle. At the age of nine, Forey recalled buying an issue of Amazing Stories in 1926. And Forey was hooked on sci-fi magazines forever. Forey always said, The cover of that magazine, drawn by Frank R. Paul, jumped out at me and said, Take me home, little boy. You will love me. Forey had articles published in these magazines every month and by the age of 15, he had 117 penpiles. Forey soon moved with his family to Hollywood and spent time hanging out at the studios. Soon, he was corresponding with, the, with sci-fi stars and authors. By 1931, Forey was corresponding with Carl LeMille Sr. He was president of Universal Studios. He told employees to give this kid whatever he wanted, including stills, press books, and actual sound discs, from films aiding Forey in his growing collections. In 1932, Forey worked with some fellow fans to publish the first sci-fi mag- fanzine, The Time Traveler. In 1939, Forey is credited with starting the traditional masquerade ball by wearing the first-ever costume at the first world science fiction convention. Also in 1939, Forey published Ray Bradbury's first story in Forey's fanzine, Voice of the Imagination. Years later, Ray Bradbury said, Forrest Ackerman is the most important fan slash collector slash human being in the history of science fantasy fiction and credited Forrey for helping thousands of young people like himself along the way. When Fory was discharged from the army in 1945, he became a literary agent and worked up to a clientele of a hundred authors. Over the years, these writers included L. Ron Hubbard, Isaac Asimov, and Stephen King. In 1957, Forey was guest of honor at the first German sci-fi convention. On his way home, he picked up a movie magazine devoted to sci-fi and horror films. Forey knew publisher James Warren, and together they created famous Monsters of Filmland that we discussed earlier. In this issue of Starlog, Forrey mentioned his, his two favorite sci-fi novels. One is Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. We know Clarke from 2001 to Space Odyssey. Forrey's other favorite was The World Below by S. Fowler Wright. Both books are for sale on Amazon. Forrey created a couple of other magazines I'll mention. In 1969, Fory along with comic book artist Trina Robbins, created the character of Vampirella. Her Warren Monthly magazine was filled with her adventures as a vampire and other horror stories. It initially ran for 112 issues until 1983. There was a 1976 Farrah Fawcett red swimsuit poster famous with the general public, but the 1972 six-foot-tall poster of Vampirella, striking a pose, was just as popular with Vampirella readers. While visiting my grandparents in Alabama around 1991, I remember seeing an article in the Sunday paper about a comic book store in Birmingham with a photo featuring this poster. As soon as it opened for business, I called the store. After some initial resistance to parting with the Vampirella poster, I made the owner an offer that he couldn't refuse, and I still have that poster. In 1990, I set a goal of acquiring these 112 Vampirella back issues. There was no internet, so I had to visit comic stores on every trip I took and go through collector's magazines. I'll never forget that night, two and a half years later, when my collection was completed with the final issues at Nashville's own The Great Escape store. Vampirella Comics are still being published today by Dynamite Entertainment. The other magazine was Forrest J. Ackerman's Monsterland. It was a similar horror-oriented magazine, like Famous Monsters of Filmland, and ran for 17 issues in the mid-1980s. I remember discovering this magazine in the bookstore at Gatlinburg, Tennessee's Mountain Mall, with an issue featuring Elvira, Sybil Danning, and Jane Badler on the cover. In 1993, Famous Monsters of Film Man was resurrected again with Forey's involvement. Forey was almost as famous for his home as for his magazines. Forey lived in Hollywood in a large home that once belonged to the movie star John Hall, who was in two of Universal's Invisible Man movies. Fans called it the Acker Mansion. All his rooms were filled with original artwork, autographs, posters, props, magazines, and other memorabilia related to science fiction, fancy and hard, that Forey spent a lifetime collecting. It was estimated that he had over three hundred thousand items in his collections. On most Saturdays, Forey welcomed fans to come to his home for a tour. For information, you simply call two one three Moon Fan. When you arrived near his home, you would look for the sign that said 4SJ of karloff Fornia, paying tribute to the legendary Boris Karloff, who played the Frankenstein monster and the mummy in the 1930s Universal films. I got to go to the Akra Mansion for tours in 1998 and 2001. Forry liked the ladies, so they would be greeted first. Then Forry would meet us fanboys. I recall about 13 rooms filled wall to wall with memorabilia. Friends think that I have large collections scattered over my, over the seven rooms of my home, but 40 was the king. Some of his more famous items were a full scale replica of the robot from 1927's German film, Metropolis directed by Fritz Lang, Ray Harryhausen's first model dinosaur and Bela Lugosi's ring and cake from Dracula. However, Forry's collections were not limited to his rooms. The big crawl space under his home was filled with large signs and posters, too. Those brave enough were allowed to go inside. I had to, of course, and my fondest memory of my first visit is Forry looking at me from the door and asking another fan how much it would cost to have my body shipped back to Tennessee. Once the tour was over, we had the chance to browse books and magazines for sale that Forey had written or edited, which he would sign for us. My signed copies of Forry's world of science fiction, famous monsters books, and issues of Vampirella serve as mementos of these unforgettable visits. Forry's fans weren't limited to just the average fan, though. Writer Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, once had a dinner in his home for Forry and made sure that his idol Boris Karloff was in attendance. Fortunately, For his filmmaking fans have immortalized him in cinema with cameos to honor him. I'll mention three. Perhaps you've seen Michael Jackson's Thriller video from 1983, directed by John Landis. John Landis also directed An American Wellworth in London, National Lampoon's Animal House, and Trading Places. When the Thriller video shows Michael Jackson and his scared date sitting in the movie theater, sitting right behind them enjoying his refreshments, is Forrest J. Ackerman. Another film to feature Forrey is 1981's The Howling, directed by Joe Dante, who also brought us Gremlins, Matinee, and Innerspace. Look for Forrey as a shopper in the other side of cult bookstore. Forey is carrying two famous monsters of film and magazines, and gets scolded by character actor Dick Miller for touching too much merchandise without buying any. Lastly, Perhaps you've heard of Peter Jackson. who directed King Kong and The Lord of the Rings and Hobbit movies. Before Peter Jackson directed those, he made Dead Alive in 1992, also known as Brain Dead. Some say it's the goriest fright film of all time. I can't disagree. Look for Forey 14 minutes into the film at a zoo and reading an issue of Famous Monsters of Film. Sadly, we lost Force J. Ackerman in 2008 but his legacy will live on forever. Thank you for letting me share with you some of Ford's achievements and memories of his home.
1: This is
3: Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan. Whenever I feel like hearing about Star Wars, I listen to Star Podlog.
2: Okay, we're here with artist Kevin B. Cleveland to discuss... Matt painting artist, Matthew Urich. Hey, welcome to the show, Kevin. Hey, how are we doing today? Awesome. Now, let's talk about your artistry. We're discussing the subject of matte paintings in movies, especially classic movies from the 60s and 70s. We know that was a a big deal back then to, to do something like that. And this article with Matthew Urich He describes going to art school and not having really any focus. He thought he'd be a fine artist and ended up working his way into the industry. Was something similar to you like that? What's your background in art? Uh,
6: So I've always been big into art. Uh, I did not do like a proper uh, art college or anything like that. Um, When I started in high school, I was always into comic book stuff and things like that. So I always thought I was going to go more into that direction. Uh, unfortunately, at the time when I was in high school doing art classes and things, um, teachers weren't into graphic style art, so they were always pushing to do something else and not didn't really want to grow people into what they wanted to do. Um, so that's why I never went to college for it, and why I kind of for for quite a while after high school just did art as a as a hobby at home. Um, so I, I luckily uh, one of the things uh, I met. Mark Ratz at a Celebration in Anaheim, and I had him look at my my art, and uh, he gave me some direction of like, hey, I you know I would recommend, you know, submitting to this, doing that, kind of getting a start there, um, and that's what I did, and that's where where it has uh, taken off from working for Topps Trading Cards, a, a few other trading card companies, comic book companies, things like that. Um, but what you were talking about with matte paintings, like I've always. I was talking to another artist yesterday. It's one of the things that I've always been fascinated with, Um, especially, you know, when they, like a lot of them, they use glass for the matte painting so they could light it behind it and things like that. And I've just always been enamored by how amazing it looks and how realistic you can get on a piece of glass with some paint compared to, you know, using shaders and pencilers and things like that to get a different effect. I've never tried it still. But it's something I've always wanted to try, honestly. So, um, but yeah, definitely didn't get to where I thought I would be growing up. I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to draw for Marvel comics. Like, like that was the thing, you know, uh, in my age group, at least. And, uh, but I'm kind of glad where I'm at. You know, I enjoy the kind of art I do. I enjoy the subject matter that I get to do. So I think life works out, you know, for what, more what you're meant to do rather than what you think you might be meant to do.
2: Yeah, that's funny because Matthew Urich talks about that, that he stumbled upon a job working as an assistant on the day the earth stood still. And when we think about classic matte paintings, one of the things that you're supposed to do as a good matte painting artist, uh, Matthew says that if you know that it's a matte painting, then you really haven't done a great job. People shouldn't know. And when you look at something like The Day the Earth Stood Still, you don't really realize it's a matte painting in certain scenes, how they merged the spaceship with the background, things of that sort. I mean, do you think that's a, that, that's a good observation, that a good matte painting artist shouldn't be recognized as an artist
6: from, from the average person's point of view? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and it's, it's, it's kind of a sword, a double-edged sword. Like, it's good enough that you don't realize that it's a painting, so at the same time, the people don't get recognition. Um, it's kind of the merge, you know, for the current age with, with um, computer effects and graphics, you know, you can have a, at this point, you have that kind of, you can have that seamless transition where people don't even realize the things that are animated in a in a scene or taken out of a scene or whatever. So it's it's uh, kudos to the artists that did it, but at the same time, people don't even realize that there was someone doing that so it, it at the same time shows that uh that they have the skill to be too good mm-hmm. to be recognized basically
2: and i like how it brings out in the article that in logan's run sometimes some of the scenes it reflected the buildings and the windows reflected a modern landscape and the mat artist had to actually go in and cover over those scenes so that in itself is just another level of the artistry of a mad artist he talks about his work on close encounters of the third kind and merging natural elements with supernatural elements you know such as like the spaceship landing on, on that tower what do you as an artist what do you think about work like that when you see natural and unnatural and it's it's totally believable but unbelievable
6: I think that is one of the best things about art whether it be as I said uh, movies film painting photography anything if you can make something so good that fantastical looks real it's it's quite an achievement you know and that is that is what Hollywood's built on you know it's it's what art in general you know there are people I do a lot of portrait work, but there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, if you can make this a spaceship look like it belongs in an actual New York skyline, that is fantastic because everybody has imagination, whether people say, oh, I'm not an imaginative person. Everybody does. But if you can make it look to a person with less imagination or more that it belongs there, it, you've, you've done more than your job, you know, in my opinion, Definitely.
2: Awesome. Tell our listeners where they could find your work and find out more about you.
6: All right. Well, I am all over everything, but I do have a website. It is uh, www.artofkevinbcleveland.com. dot uh, Facebook is backsplash. Excuse me. Backslash uh, Cleveland's period art. Instagram uh, the real Kevin B Cleveland. Uh, and then from any of those, you can link to pretty much everything else I have.
2: Now there's an advertisement in here for Future Life magazine. We know at this time, 1978, Starlog was being published bi-monthly. So what they did was, on the in-between months, they produced a magazine called Future, which would later on be called Future Life. So we're not going to do a complete review of this magazine, but I'd like to share some interesting aspects of the first issue. The publishers asked the question, what does the future hold for science fiction?
1: Force J. Ackerman says, The next 20 years in science fiction, let's round it off to 22 and look back from the year 2000. I think the biggest advance will be in the visual media. By the 21st century, every kid will have a wall of vision in his den, and a collection of classics including such video miniseries and theatrical spectaculars as Darth Vader Lives, Close Encounters of the Final Kind, Slan, The World Below, The Martian Chronicles, The Grey Lensman Series, Childhood's End, etc. 25,000 more novels and anthologies will have been published. It will require whole wings of libraries to accommodate all the posters. A complete set of 365 issues of Famous Monsters of Filmland will be worth one million dollars and an 84-year-old Forrest J. Ackerman will still be in the thick of the (laughs) fray. Okay, so his prediction of the future?
2: So he was partially right. We would have vast libraries of information at our disposal, and there were a ton of sequels to popular movies, TV shows, and books.
1: And he knew what was popular, and... And, of course, his magazine was very popular back then.
2: Let's see what David Prowse has to say about the future of science fiction. He says, Every so often, something happens to send cinemas off on a different tact. Star Wars is now doing that. We are now into science fiction. People like myself are sick and tired of looking through the newspapers, then going to the cinema and not seeing things they consider suitable to see. There are too many sex films, too many horror films, and too much violence in the cinema. Star Wars has filled a fantastic void. We're really talking about science fantasy. Basil Rathbone and Errol Flynn all over again, but in a futuristic world. Really, it's fantastic. There will be a great interest in science fiction for quite a while, provided that the films are done well. As soon as you start cheapening the product, the cinema will go in a different tact again. Now, this is funny to hear David Prowse saying that there's too much horror... But he was in all these horror films, the Hammer horror films.
1: That is interesting. Well, I mean, it could have been he did it just because he needed the money and that's the kind of films that were being made.
2: He wanted to make sure that Star Wars, he's going to be in the next Star Wars film and he wanted to pioneer this effort.
1: In in a way, you can see how he, he wanted to make sure he was in it because, you know, he was wearing a mask and they didn't use his voice. So theoretically, they could get someone else to do it without anybody knowing.
2: Good point and there's an article in the magazine about the time machine the classic 1960 color movie by george powell i mean what'd you think about the time machine
1: that was an incredible movie and i mean you can and you can see why why people still like it today it was um you know, a time machine, and turned out to be timeless uh, about the future and showing and showing what could happen, how we could basically destroy ourselves.
2: Yeah, it's one of those retro articles, and it stands the test of time because you could watch the time machine now, and it's very poignant.
5: This is the world of the Micronauts, a Croyer, the enemy, and the Micronaut space warriors, all sold separately. Space glider, galactic warrior. Time traveler. Made to fit the Micronaut vehicles, like the Photon Sled. You can stage make-believe battles against a Kroyer. Like all Micronauts, a Kroyer has interchangeable parts, so you can create your own toys. Micronauts, made of plastic and die-cast metal, each sold separately by Mego.
2: go. now open up Starlog magazine, number 14, cover date, June of 1978. And on the cover... There's a picture of P.S. Ellenshaw, the Star Wars matte painter. There's an advertisement on the inside. Cover for a Close Encounters of a Third Kind hologram pendant, only sixteen ninety five. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Jamie rides the chariot. Bionic Womick fans have surely noted influences on Von... Dane King's Theories, who is the writer of Chariots of the Gods, in recent scripts. Executive producer Lee Siegel freely acknowledges the source. Close Encounters of the Wrong Kind Steven Spielberg's UFO movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind is being touted as the most factually realistic saucer story ever filmed. Yet, according to some devout movie buffs, the film is chock full of factual flaws. For example, the aliens musically reveal to a group of eager earthlings the latitude and longitude of a place where they wish to hold an intergalactic summit conference. UFOologists, using only the information given, deduce that Devil's Tower, Wyoming is the meeting place that the aliens have in mind. However, according to the map enthusiasts, the information is incomplete. They're saying that the numbers are off a little bit. So, I mean, think about that. There were nitpickers back in the 1970s before the Internet could start attacking <laughs> all the little details of movies.
1: Yeah, so they got a, they're got they off a little bit on the latitude and longitude.
2: Of Devil's Tower, so, <laughs> <laughs> so they're discrediting the movie.
1: <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, it, it's a movie. We, we get it. I mean, we <laughs> the movie said what it's supposed to be, and we can accept that.
2: These that are challenging the coordinates are saying that... They are four degrees off, which accounts to 276 miles off in positioning.
1: Which is actually a lot.
2: I'm just amazed that someone could figure that out before VCR is like they're just watching the movie and thought of writing it down and looking into it.
1: That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah, you, they had to have seen it in a theater and, and wrote down those coordinates and then took it, Take they had to take it home and figure it out. <laughs>
2: Advertisement for jewelry of the third kind. we got to remember, by this point, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was an, a massive success. And so there are all these pendants that say Close Encounters or have a pendant of Devil's Mountain or CE3K. They're $9.95 each plus $1 postage and handling. 1999 con to help Children's Hospital. Something is quite unusual will be happening at the Sheridan Hotel in Columbus, Ohio, July 28th to the 30th. A science fiction convention will be held where all the profits will be donated to charity, instead of being kept by the convention organizers. The Space 1999 Convention 78 will be presented by National Save, a 1999 alliance, a nonprofit fan-run organization. I mean, how cool is that? That's pretty amazing.
1: Doing a con for charity, yeah. I don't think we've really heard of that now. I mean, now there might be someone signing autographs for charity or something like Dragon that.
2: Dragon Con always has a charity.
1: Yeah, yeah, not the whole That's con. That's the only but con that have... I
2: know that that sends out a ton of money to a selected charity every year. This is an advertisement for space war masks, and they're obviously knockoffs of Star Wars masks. So instead of Darth Vader, it's Death Invader. Space Trooper, UFO, Alien, TM32 Robot, only twenty four ninety five each.
1: This is the time when everyone liked Star Wars and, and wanted these things, and lots of knockoffs were produced. Yeah, because people can make the knockoffs and make money off them. At, you know, and didn't bother to try to get a license.
2: Star Wars watches, nineteen ninety five each, plus a dollar five for postage and handling. And I actually had this one. May the force of time be with you. And I still have it. I remember my aunt got my brother and I matching watches. They're from Bradley's. (laughs) TV Update Martians and magicians to invade TV airwaves The NBC TV network has announced plans for its fall schedule that include the presentation of what just might be science fiction's finest hour on the tube. Ray Bradbury's classic work of two decades ago, The Martian Chronicles, will finally make his way to television. Also, coming up, pre-production work is going on for the up-and-coming telefilm Doctor Strange, a full-length animated exploit of Flash Gordon, and Buck Rogers. Captain America has also been placed on the CBS production skew. What do you think about those? This is the Captain America with that clear shield. Remember that?
1: Yeah, barely. Yeah.
2: (laughs) It was very forgettable.
1: But yeah, talking about Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. We remember those.
2: <laughs> I like the animated Flash Gordon. It just didn't yeah. stick.
1: And also the, the TV version of um, the Martian Chronicles. That was, it was, it was, a, it was a TV miniseries. I remember, back then I kinda thought it was pretty boring. I didn't watch it all. Mm-hmm. But some TV adaptations aren't as good.
0: My name is Kevin Lentz. I run a Facebook group called Star Wars Records and Tapes, and I'm also a member of the Kentucky Star Wars Collectors Club. I'm looking at with you today, uh, page 50 of issue 14, a short article called Science Fiction Soundtracks. It's got a really amazingly terrible picture. Um, Naked Chewbacca, I mean, he's basically naked, but he looks even more naked without the bandolier, right? Sprawled out on the floor, uh, flipping through collection of record albums. The article begins by lamenting the historical lack of sci-fi soundtracks, but then turns to talking about how that first Star Wars movie soundtrack from 1977 turned that around. Uh, it mentions all the re-recordings of that album that popped up, the disco, the, the jazz, etc. And then moves into an announcement about its own Starlog records and soliciting... Uh, survey advice on which records to present. The um, collecting of of Star Wars media, Star Wars records, tapes, CDs, is niche. We're not action figures, we're not posters, we're not comic books, but it's definitely an interesting aspect of the hobby, and especially some of those off-brand re-recordings of the Star Wars music have interesting cover art, weird cover art, bizarre cover art, even more so than the crazy picture of Chewbacca accompanying this article
2: close encounters with an open mind well this is an article about the new tv series entitled project ufo and it was very much set up like dragnet you had narrator telling you what was going on and they would reenact actual ufo encounters what would you think about when we watched this
1: It it was interesting because you're you're watching them follow a UFO sighting and and interviewing the people. It it was kind of slow-paced, though.
2: It was like a precursor to the X-Files. I'd like to say it's a 70s version of the X-Files, like the segments of X-Files that dealt with UFO encounters.
1: It it was made at a time when people were into that because of post-encounters of the third kind. But they really didn't make it as interesting, though, so it it didn't last. (laughs)
2: The Saga of Capricorn One: A Watergate in Space. What did you think about this
1: movie? Now that was actually a good movie. So they, so it was about NASA and they were going to send these three astronauts to Mars, and something happened. They found out that the that the mission never would have made it, but they de- so they decide to to just fake it. They're going to make everyone think that the guys actually do go to Mars, and 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 the three astronauts were. I mean, they had to play along, but they really didn't want to. They did not like lying to people and, and even having to send a transmission back to Earth and, and lying to their wives saying, yeah, we're here on Mars. And
2: It was an incredible cast. You had O.J. Simpson. This is pre-murder O.J. Simpson, but post-football O.J. Simpson. James Brolin and Sam Waterson. And so they reluctantly had to go along with this government cover-up because they, they were told if you don't we'll kill your families. So it shows all that was going what they did. They set up a production studio and they made the astronauts fake a Mars landing and fooled the entire Earth into thinking that man did land on Mars.
1: Yeah, they they even built a, a set to show the um what looked like their their capsule and, and um and their equipment and that yeah, and they had to like act like actors basically on on mars it was um
2: and it showed the repercussions of what would happen as people were figuring out that this was a hoax and when you start calling out the government on things like this what happens
1: bye-bye yeah yeah very (laughs) cloak and dagger and and yeah and the movie did have people that a reporter and someone else who who Figured out that you know, hey, something's wrong here. And
2: it's an awesome movie. We don't want to give away too many spoilers, but would you recommend anyone else watching this?
1: Oh yes, yeah. so it was, it was great. And, and even and th- thinking about today too, because we just had the uh, the China rover on Mars, mm-hmm. and so this is something that um that evokes a lot of things that that you, that, you know today it's still relevant today. And yeah. now that we've got other space travel going on. And because this was made a few years after the moon landing, and people had accused the moon landing of having been faked.
2: Yeah, it brings up a lot of amazing questions, and it holds up to today. It's I, I can't believe this movie doesn't get wider recognition for what it is, because it's engaging the entire time.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially with, with O.J. Simpson and, and James Brolin. Mm-hmm.
2: We're here with artist Jeremiah Pendoja to talk about the special effects matte artistry of P.S. Ellenshaw. Welcome to the show.
7: Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it.
2: We're looking at this article from Starlog, and it says that the successful matte painter is a closet artist of the film industry, that their work remains invisible to the mass public of moviegoers but we as Star Wars fans and as fans of artwork look for details like this and um, initially you don't you don't notice as a kid especially that the wonderful things that we see in Star Wars a lot of it the backgrounds and even quite a bit of the figures are the work of a matte painter. When, When did you find out about this unique form of artistry? You know what it took me well
7: I'm 42 now so it took me 20 years to probably figure this out and finally realizing details and uh, special things, you know, that, that were placed like that. So it took me quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm still finding out till this day certain things, you know, that were done like that.
4: Yeah.
2: And so when we think about especially the first Star Wars movie, and you, and you look at other things like Return to Witch Mountain, The Cat from Outer Space, we don't think of those having ties to Star Wars, but they do, and that's because of the artists that are behind the scenes. Now, how did you get into art? Uh, you know what I got into art when I was a young kid? Uh, my grandma used to
7: paint ceramic dolls at the table. And as she got older, uh, she wasn't able to see real good. So I used to do the fine details like on eyes and stuff like that, mm-hmm. fairies and, you know, goblins or whatever she was painting. Mm-hmm. So I really got into art like that. And then to the 90s, I just started doing graffiti in the streets of uh, Southern California. And I took that uh, to a canvas and started doing paintings and then incorporating graffiti and Star Wars, the two best things that I loved, incorporated them in one. So that's what I got into real big into art.
2: That's so awesome. That's your inspiration because, in fact, P.S. Ellenshaw says that when he saw the works of Ralph McQuarrie, he knew that he wanted to get involved in this project. I mean, when you look at the work of Ralph Ralph McQuarrie, isn't it just absolutely awesome? Oh, yeah. It's amazing. It's totally awesome. Is there things that in, in the world of Ralph McQuarrie that you wish that did make it into the Star Wars film somehow?
7: Uh, you know what? I don't know. That's hard. like I
2: think about the stormtroopers with the shield. How that ended up working into the the pre uh, the sequel movies.
7: Yeah, until the later ones. And actually, yeah. one of the graffiti pieces I did actually has one of those stormtroopers that has like the shoulder pad in it yeah. with the graffiti background. So it would have been something, you know. when you see bootlegs and customs mm-hmm. that people have made that that should have been something going on.
2: So yeah. now in the original Star Wars movie, there are seventeen match shots utilizing 13 paintings, Uh, things like the sand crawler that's in the background. So it wasn't just scenery, but you're actually looking at physical objects like machinery and also some people. Like we know that the throne room scene, I think it's a little bit more obvious now because everyone has DVDs, clear pictures, Blu-rays, larger screens. Um, But when we were growing up, I mean they look stiff because I thought they were all at attention.
7: Right. Right? Yeah, but we know it's a
2: matte painting. Yeah,
7: exactly it was. Now that you now that, you know that we know, but back then you you wouldn't even realize that that's what was going on.
2: And it talks about, and you mentioned it, that the artistry of painting on the glass, and that in itself is a unique medium. Have you as an artist ever tried painting on glass?
7: Yeah, actually I have painted on glass and etched uh, with, on mirrors. The backside of a mirror has like a gray finish to it, but if you scratch through it, it will show up on the other side of the glass of the mirror where you can see the image, and then you can paint it a different color to actually see it.
2: All oh, right, let's talk about that. What what did you do and what was the motivation behind that?
7: Well actually doing it was an accident. It was a mirror that <laughs> we were playing in my grandma's backyard and it ended up like breaking and scratching and we noticed hey there's scratches that came through it from when it fell on the ground and the pebbles scratched the gray yeah. mat on the back of a mirror. We noticed that you could see through it. We're like, What is going on here? So we took rocks and started scratching just random stuff on it, you know, whatever that we could think of. And then later on in life, uh, me and my uncle sat down in the garage and actually Uh, hand-drawn, like sketched that on the backside of it, and then took like a fine razor blade and sketched, etched all the gray off of it, the backing, and then you could flip the mirror around and see the image coming through, but then we would put like gold glitter or, you know, whatever we wanted to pin in there. So yeah, that we came up with that pretty cool, you know,
2: idea on accident. Man, that's really awesome. So when we review the works of this amazing matte painter, P.S. Ellenshaw, I mean, what do we, what do we walk away with it as fans? What do we truly appreciate about his work, would you say?
7: I I think just as fans, and Star Wars fans in general, I mean, you just appreciate every aspect about it. I mean, everything is just beautiful and well done. Where can our listeners find out more about your artistry? You can find me on Artistic Lifestyle on Instagram and Artistic Lifestyle on Facebook.
1: Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the Force be with you nanu nanu